centuries in song, the people of Great Britain have beseeched Almighty God to save their kings or queens. But is there anyone on this side of heaven who helps guide His Majesty or Her Majesty on the path to salvation? And if the monarchy claims to be in charge of an entire church, doesn't that complicate the whole business to begin with? And is there anything Catholics can learn from the Anglican experiment of fusing religious and civil authority together? Joining us today to help unpackage all this is Dr. Gavin Ashenden, one of Queen Elizabeth II's former honorary chaplains. Dr. Ashenden served as an Anglican priest for more than 35 years and as an honorary chaplain to Her Majesty for nearly 10 years before a series of events led him to leave the Church of England. Two years later, through the grace of divine providence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he was formally received into the Catholic Church. Much to our pleasant surprise, our conversation with Dr. Ashenden was longer and more wide-ranging than we expected. So we've decided to divide the interview into two parts and release them separately. The first part focuses on the fusion of religious and temporal authority within the British monarchy and what it means to minister to the Queen as a chaplain. The second segment has a more personal flavor, with Dr. Ashenden sharing the story of what compelled him to walk away from the Church of England and eventually enter into communion with the Church of Rome. Before we get into the interview, we just wanted to thank all of you for listening and subscribing to the Crown and Crozier podcast. We feel strongly that the types of discussions we're having on this show are critically important ones, and we were thrilled by the incredible response and interest that you and other listeners have shown since we launched the podcast a few weeks ago. We want to let you know how grateful we are to have you join the conversation. With the program now up and running, we'd like to ask you to help by giving us a rating on your favorite podcast provider, if you haven't done so already. If you could leave us a comment as well, that would be awesome. The more ratings we have and the more comments people make, the more the podcast gets offered to new people who haven't heard of it. So thanks once again. And without further ado, we trust that you'll enjoy this special two-part series of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. Thanks so much for tuning in. There are two swords, and the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We're delighted to have and to welcome today's guest, Dr. Gavin Ashenden. Dr. Ashenden, welcome to Crown and Crozier. Patrick, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. So we are all different degrees of excited today for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, you are our first guest from across the pond. Also, the exceptional circumstances and insights that you bring to bear and the momentous developments over the last four years of your life. Uh, we are very excited to, to learn all about that, including your decision to step down from your ordained priestly office in the Church of England back in 2017. And then fast forward two years later, by God's grace, you are received into the, to the Catholic Church. How joyful. So let's start with some of your exceptional experiences. And I think, I suspect our listeners will be most interested to learn more about your prior service as an honorary chaplain to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth from 2008 to 2017. So particularly for our listeners on this side of the Atlantic, help us understand that role a little bit better. Did it involve 
pastoral ministry, spiritual direction? What was the job description? Um, it's not at all what you think. So um, English society has a particular characteristic to it. Everything has, uh, it's like a luxuriant garden in which things were planted a very long time ago. So the idea of being chaplain to the king or to the queen started round about the Battle of Agincourt. <laughs> and, and we know this because the, one of the things we know about the battle came from a royal chaplain, technically a member of the royal ecclesiastical household. In those days, all Catholics, of course. And he was sitting writing up his blog on the baggage train uh, round the back of the Battle of Agincourt. And he tells us some of the blow-by-blow developments of the battle. And his blog, his diary, his journal, his, his archived record was kept, uh, probably by accident more than anything else, in terms of the way historical documents find their way down the centuries. And so we know a little bit more about the battle than we would have known otherwise. And we know that the Royal Ecclesiastical Household had started then. Now, in, in those days, if you were a, a king, or, or mainly kings, of course, but sometimes queens, uh, when you traveled, you, 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 you took kind of a whole town around with you. Everybody traveled. Um, it was just like, like moving an enormous number of people. And, and, that, and one of the most important things to do was to celebrate mass daily. And so uh, there have been 30, 32 royal chaplains since the 13th century. And they're, they're, they're part of the, the baggage train that accompany the king wherever he goes. Now, there have been lots of developments since the, the 13th century, including, <laughs> including the absolutely traumatic rupture with, with, with the Catholic Church. Uh, and one of the things Anglicanism did was it became Catholic light. And so it, it injected itself with a certain amount of exotic pr- progressive value, what, what in the 16th century were progressive values of reform. But it basically kept, the, it kept everything on the outside the same pretty well. Cathedrals, churches, liturgy was tweaked. Priests were allowed to marry, although or, or or Cranmer had to, uh, the, the first uh, crossover <laughs> <laughs> uh, Archbishop of Canterbury had to smuggle his wife around uh, in a in a chest of drawers <laughs> because, although he was allowed to be married, he didn't think the, the the crowd would like it very much. So when he went from A to B, he would say to his wife, "Okay, darling, cl- climb climb in the chest. We'll put you on the cart with the horses. I'll see you at the other end. We'll open the lid." So that, but that was literally how he moved Mrs. Cranmer around. Um, so a number of things changed, a number of things stayed the same. One of the things that stayed the same was the royal ecclesiastical household stay what it was. And after a while, when it became, particularly after the Reformation, I suppose in a way that one of the things I think it's quite like is, is when George III set up shop in Brighton, he had a small orchestra which went with him everywhere. So he liked dancing. So the Prince Regent, before he became king, um, had a band and and if he was in London, the band was there. And if he was in Brighton, the band was there. And where the Prince Regent went, the band went. And same with the royal chaplains. And we're, we're, we're providing a different kind of music, but it's the same principle, a, kind of a band of priests and clergy. And uh, after a while, the royal ecclesiastical household became associated with just one of the palaces in London. Your, your listeners probably know there are several palaces. Uh, there's Buckingham Palace, which, of course, was built not for the royalty, but for the Duke of Buckingham. Uh, a bit like Hampton Court Palace was built by for Wolsey. And Henry said, this is much too grand for you. I think I'll have it. And uh, the royal family said, 
to the Duke of Buckingham, this is much too grand for you, we'll have this as well. So palaces were, the thing, the thing to do was not to build too grand a palace if you were a courtier, because the royal family would, would invite you to give it to them as a love offering. <laughs> uh, but another palace was St. James's Palace, and that happened to be, for no good historical reason, where the royal ecclesiastical house cult got based. So now what you have is you have 32 priests based in this palace. The palace has two chapels, a summer chapel and a winter chapel. They have slightly different feelings to them. And I, I have no idea, you know, who knows how that started. Uh, the, the, the English, I was being interviewed for Prince Philip's funeral by the BBC uh, the other day, and they were asking me about Philip. And uh, I was saying that one of the things he did, he was, he was enormous modernizer and reformer and so the queen he discovered got brought a bottle of a whiskey on a salver a silver salver every night and put on her bedside table and philip said why is this and it turned out the answer was that one day in the 1860s queen victoria got a cough and her physician said madam you need some whiskey i will have it brought to your bedside to go to bed with and nobody ever rescinded the order <laughs> so it became part of the uh, part of the rhythm of royal life that every night a footman brought a bottle of decanter of whiskey to the royal bedside. And only when Philip married Elizabeth did somebody ask the question, why is this happening and should it continue? So you can imagine there were many other things in the life of the royal family of which that question was never asked. And I think the royal ecclesiastical household was one of them. So they're based at St. James's Palace. There's a, a sub-dean Although he's called the subdean, he's really the dean, but he's called the subdean because the dean is the Bishop of London who never turns up. <laughs> so the subdean runs, runs the royal chapel and he, three weeks out of every four, he calls one of the royal chaplains to come and preach. Now you'd think if we were the royal ecclesiastical household and chaplains to Her Majesty the Queen, that the Queen would want to do nothing more than on a Sunday to make it a priority to go be preached at by her chaplains. But she never does. <laughs> Literally never. <laughs> on a Sunday, the Queen is usually, uh, if she's in town at all and she tries not to stay in town, the Queen and, and, and before her the King and before him the King and before him the Queen Victoria, they would, they would go to Sandringham or to Windsor Castle. They, the, the, the place they would not be is where the Royal Ecclesiastical Household was, full of chaplains enthusiastically preaching their hearts out in St. James's Palace. So at one level... This whole thing is like the Beefeater's uniform at the Tower of London. It, it's exotic, it has very rich historical antecedents, and it's utterly without purpose. <laughs> but having said that, if you have 32 chaplains, there are things you can do with them. You can, you can use them like stocking fillers on social occasions. So if there's a Buckingham Palace tea party, well, you have 32 chaplains who are all dressed in, in gorgeous scarlet cassocks, making them look like cardinals. The real temptation at a Buckingham Palace tea party is when an American visitor comes up to you and says, are you a cardinal? The real temptation is to tell the truth and <laughs> not <laughs> say, no, I look like a cardinal. I'd like to be a cardinal, but I'm only one of Her Majesty's chaplains. With all that being said, then, how much FaceTime, how much direct interaction might you have had with Her Majesty and the other members of the royal household over your nine or so years of service? Well, so that's, and that would be the place I was going to go to, but thank you for making sure I went there. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, my father was a, uh, was a colleague of Prince Philip's. Um, they served together in the war. They, they had a number of experiences together. 
And so my father sent me messages to give to Prince Philip. So I would say to him, um, good afternoon, sir. Uh, your old shipmate, Michael Ashenden, says hello. And do you remember the very exciting time you had being shouted at by a sergeant major at an army training camp? He, he found it one of the most colourful weeks of his life. And he seems to remember you you, you did too. And, and, and there's a whole story behind that. Because actually the sergeant major set out to make poor old Prince Philip's life a complete misery because at the time he was just a penniless Greek. And so the sergeant major at the army training camp decided he was more socially elevated than this penniless Greek prince who was a first lieutenant. And he made his life hell during that week. And my father and Philip went through it together. So there was that. I remember the first time I mistook the, uh, the Duchess of Wessex for a cocktail waitress. <laughs> and I was in in Westminster Castle and this very nice cocktail waitress brought me a cocktail and I said I'm very sorry I said but you, you look very familiar have we met before and she said she was great this was great you could see the light of battle in her eyes straight away and you could see she you could see her saying this is going to be fun let's see where this goes so she said well I don't know who who do you think I am and then I thought this is dangerous do be careful but I said because the trouble is I have I have met quite a lot of people in one in one incarnation uh or another and it's quite important not to forget people uh if you're a if you're a priest uh or if, if you occupy any public role so um anyway in in the end she said some people think i look like like the duchess of wessex and i said my goodness you actually you do <laughs> well she said, that's no surprise i am so although she was dressed like a waitress and acting like a waitress and being a waitress she was in fact the duchess of wessex and, and and she was very nice and we got talking and one of the things that happens whether you're talking to prince philip uh, a bit or the queen which is slightly more difficult because the queen has a very strict pattern of conversation i mean one of the one of the conventions is is that you don't introduce the conversation to the queen you let her run it um it's it's a bit like if you're the Australian Prime Minister, you don't put your arm round her waist, as one famously did. Which is, there are a number of things in royal etiquette you don't do. Uh, and one of the things is you, you, you don't take the initiative in a conversation, she takes it. So any conversation has to come from her. But if you've been around for a while, then members of the royal family get used to you. They, 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 they like you or they avoid you. Uh, they might talk to you. They'll talk to you superficially to begin with. There might be reasons for them to saying, wanting a private word. But of course, any member of the royal family who had a private word with a chaplain, uh, no chaplain would ever say they'd had it afterwards because that would be to betray the nature of the relationship. So there we are. There are two kinds of conversations that happen. Those, those that grow organically out of a sense of mutual mutuality on social occasions and and those that you have because you hang around like a stocking filler on one of the more exotic occasions i know for many of our listeners and, and for me a question that comes to mind is i mean we can't resist it what is her majesty like in person but but I, particularly for purposes of our program and, and our our niche our focus i want to frame that question along the lines of the queen of england her majesty the sovereign wears two hats, there's two roles, head of state and supreme governor of the, of the Church of England. I, I want to put the question to you, having developed those relationships with uh, Her Majesty and, and perhaps to a greater extent with the other members of the royal family, what's your sense of, of how they, they understand their role and, and how that is manifested and, and played out as it relates to serving as, as head of this, of this Christian church? 
the best way we can get there is think of Megan and Harry and then go to the opposite end of the scale. <laughs> so, so you're quite right. The queen has two roles and one personality. So um, she's queen. Uh, she's, she's head of state. She's supreme governor of the, of the Church of England, though that's a very complicated and meaningless concept. Mm. Even her role as head of state is slightly meaningless, which I'll come back to in a minute. And then, and then there's Elizabeth Windsor, the, the person, uh, the, the woman who fell in love with Prince Philip, the woman who lost her dad, uh, the woman who had to decide to put her personality and her womanhood aside and, and bury them in the kind of Russian doll of these two other roles. And what that means is that if you're meeting the Queen, either as Queen or as Supreme Governor of the Church of England, you're not meeting Elizabeth. If you ever got to meet Elizabeth, you would not be meeting the Queen or the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. So her sometimes people say, well, you know, does she have any faith? So then you need to say, are you talking about the head of state, the Supreme Governor, or Elizabeth? Uh, if you're talking about Elizabeth, we, we know she does because she gets to come out once a year at the Queen's speech when she's when she breaks all the rules. And we'll come back to the rules because the rules are why I had to resign. She breaks all the rules and she's the only one who gets to. And she said something, she says something quite personal about Christmas in a very profound and, and, and potent and rich way. But only she's allowed to break those rules and she shouldn't really. Um, I mean, she really shouldn't because the governor of the Supreme Governor of the Church of England has no views. They, they, are, they are a titular, non-executive head of a church that is completely irrational and makes no sense. An example of the irrationality is that she's called Defender of the Faith. But actually, this was a title given to Henry VIII when he attacked Luther in a, in a vitriolic pamphlet about the sacraments. And the Pope was so pleased to have Henry being his good theological friend in the in the skirmish that was taking place in Europe, he gave him this title. So the next thing Henry VIII did was to stab the Pope in the back and the front at the same time, take the title, and then bequeath it to all his Protestant successors. Well, it's crazy for a Protestant to bear the title Defender of the Catholic Faith against Luther. I mean, that, you know, it doesn't get more... I was going to say that's an odd way of saying thank you. <laughs> it's a very... Well, Henry VIII had some odd ways about him. But, but not only was that odd, but for it to be the kind of primary title on the coin that the head of the Church of England and the head of state has, you know, it's, it's uh, the nicest thing you can say is it's quaint and historical. Um, if you were going to be, if you were a reformer or a progressive or a Republican, you would say, oh, look, for goodness sake, cut all this out. Let's, you know, let, let's at least have a political system that makes sense. However, the magic, the extraordinary, the extraordinary thing about the English Constitution, about the Queen and her roles, is it's all a bunch of incoherent nonsense that works in a most extraordinary way for the good of everybody. And so reform is a very dangerous thing at all because you may destroy the magic. No one knows where the magic lies. We, we don't know why it works. Um, people suspect that it works because the Queen has become... She's, she's become, in, an arch, in, in a way that Jordan Peterson would describe as archetypical, she's become a, a kind of lightning rod figure, a sort of royal granny, uh, and, and it just works for the psyche of the state. But, but let nobody forget that there was talk of her being dethroned during the Diana crisis when the whole country went mad, uh, had a kind of psychotic episode. Um, 
she was only she and the royal family were only a couple of inches away from from a republic so you can't take anything for granted but we have a number of factors we have we have an exotic history uh, which appoints is 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 incoherent and uh, and nonsensical we have an extraordinary competent generation of uh, two two generations of royalty her and her dad after her uncle nearly wrecked the whole thing completely by by doing a megan in the in the 1930s and uh, and so we've had a hundred years of stability and we're about to have the most terrible crisis because uh, when charles becomes when charles is crowned two other voices in the civic estate will raise their standards and say we went we want in on this and one is secular atheism and the other is islam and the problem with the idea of christian monarchy is it is deeply deeply phenomenally wonderfully christian rooted in the first covenant with containing rich resonances that have made christendom what it is and it is not amenable to relativism to multiculturalism to to being reformed and so it's going to be extremely interesting to see what happens when when the new coronation service has to be created many questions coming from that i, I want to take them one one at a time i want to go back to what you were saying about the elegant incoherence of the state of affairs in the english monarchy and the, and the church of england there's one contradiction there i want to explore a little bit more the dual roles of the queen and then her individual identity personality as elizabeth the words of the english national anthem are god save the queen based on everything that you've just described who in her life is responsible for helping her to be saved um, so are you talking about spiritual salvation as as a unique as a unique unrepeatable soul and child of god who who does to who, who does she seek counsel from uh, who does she who ministers to her in that in that spiritual capacity well first of all um I don't mean this in a pejorative way at all, but, but first of all, she's a grown-up, so she's responsible. And how does she exercise that responsibility is the next question. Uh, well, one of the very interesting ways she exercised it was to have some very long and intensely personal conversations with Billy Graham. So when Billy Graham came over to England to do a what, what, what was at the time an, an immensely powerful and effective evangelistic campaign, she asked to see him. Uh, and uh, it's perfectly clear from the records and from the contemporary records, she was very impressed and touched by him. And, you know, <laughs> we know what Billy Graham did to people's souls. He was very good at saving them. Uh, and I have no doubt at all that one of the things that he did was to help act as a catalyst for her soul's journey. And at the same time, Again, one of the sort of exotic and contradictory things about the Church of England is, despite the fact that it has almost no public ambition for holiness as a church, the Church of England doesn't do saints. It, it, it did saints and it, when it was Catholic, and, and it's inherited some saints, but it doesn't do saints, it does politics. And, but nonetheless, saints pop up. And I happen to know that in the royal ecclesiastical household during her time, there have been one or two really saintly people. And I'd be very surprised, is probably the best way of putting it, if she hadn't found them and their proximity. And the fact that the Holy Spirit placed them around her, sources of really serious help at times 
of crisis, not only for prayer, but for consultation. So she's a grown-up, and, and, and the Holy Spirit has been generous in terms of the resources that he's made available to her, and I'm pretty sure she's made the most of them. Returning to some of the other th- things that you mentioned, the next generation in the household, you've talked a little bit about Ch- Prince Charles, hoping you can elaborate a little bit more there, uh, and then also speak a bit to the, the generation that follows. So Prince Charles, when he was growing up, <laughs> said and did some things that he, more than anybody else, would like to have unsaid and undone, like the rest of us, ju- just like the rest of us. But the problem is, again, this is one of the reasons I had to resign because because we'll get there. But I mean, you'll see the same theme coming through. The extent to which the royal family can engage with contemporary politics is really, really, really limited. It, it can't. The moment it does that, it loses its impartiality and it can only survive by being impartial. And the problem was poor Charles being very frustrated. I mean, who wouldn't be frustrated having to wait to get your job until you're 75 or whatever? Tried to be relevant and um, became very interested in Islam. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a very useful thing to do. But you probably shouldn't talk about it. (laughs) Uh, Or if you do talk about it, be very careful how you talk about it. And at one point he, he he made a very unhappy remark. Yeah, I want to be defender of all faiths, of faith which was a kind of half Jungian tip half to Lawrence van der Post and Carl Gustav Jung and tip half to to Sufism and, and the exoticisms of some kinds of Islam. And, and he might want that, but that's not the role of the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. <laughs> so you've got to choose between one or the other. And sometimes you don't get to choose. That's the problem. You either do it or you get it taken away from you. So it's going to be... Ext- now, Charles has... Charles has become a very dignified and very worthy of respect person. Uh, he's shown great patience. Great. He's done some amazing things. I mean, this, the, the things he's done for unemployed youth, for example, probably one of the most important things you could ever do in, in today's contemporary society, uh, have, have been utterly fantastic and, and partly unsung. I don't know where his faith is, but I do know he's had some very good advisors. I know some of the people he's spoken to, and uh, and and they were really excellent. But that you know, in 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 the currency of the kingdom of heaven, you you don't necessarily get as holy or as good or as Christian as your advisors. Nice if we all did, but that doesn't automatically follow. So we're we're going we're in for a very bumpy ride indeed, because I I think my my own view is that we're at the end of an era. And I cannot see any way in which Christendom can transition into multiculturalism when it's held together by Christian glue that is so explicit that if you begin to add a solvent to it, you destroy it. So, you know, it may be that there would be a way of reinventing monarchy and reconstituting it in a non-Judeo-Christian way. There may be there's some kind of very clever lateral thinking a fusion of of, uh, of of head of republic with with you know the, 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 what was the monarchy. If, I think if I was in charge, I would ask ten very wise think tanks to sit down and and do completely off the wall stuff to see if by some lateral thinking we could find a way. On. Because what can't happen is the present situation will not survive the perfectly legitimate civic demands made by Muslims and by atheists. 
and there are lots of Muslims and lots of atheists. So, for example, by the year 2050, there will be more Muslims than anybody else, any other. There'll be there'll be over 50 percent of the population, not just more than any other group. They will they will be demographically the majority. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, uh, no, not not many people do know that. And again, that that informed my my particular trajectory. One fairly important point. And then you probably know that the studies show that just this last year, um, we had more atheists than believers of any kind collectively, 51%, 49 something. So we're now demographically an atheist country. Does that matter? Ought to matter? If it matters, how long can a Christian monarchy survive in an increasingly numerical atheist society and an increasingly um, a Serbic one. You know, we are the country of Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and they had an immense impact in the last 20 years. Uh, and the younger generation, you know, you ask about the younger generation. So uh, William is turning out to be quite a dignified man, and his, his wife is just fabulous in so many ways, in their understated dignity and, comp and, and you know, and again, competence. But they don't show any signs of having any great insight into the faith, and they certainly don't articulate any. Now, you know, maybe they don't have to, but but they don't. So uh, we're, we're going from something really very pronounced, gold standard in the Queen, to something quite problematic in Charles, particularly in his relationship, leaving aside the state of Charles's heart, in his relationship, constitutional relationship with a complex society, to what the heck's going to happen when Charles dies, maybe 25 years' time, and Prince William at the age of 40 or 50 becomes king of a nation that is utterly, utterly unrecognizable. I think this is a really good point of transition. There's so much more that could be said, but uh, a couple of other topics I want to make sure that we're able to cover. Why don't we do a quick a tutorial, Anglican Church 101, for the benefit of our listeners, before we uh, get into your own personal story and, and what prompted you to step away from the system and the incoherence and the elegance uh, and the, the history of, of everything that you've just laid out. But so we have a, a better understanding of the structure of the church of our Anglican cousins, where, where they're coming from, just a bit of a crash course, and, and we're only going to scratch the surface. But in, in terms of the, the British monarch serving as the, the supreme governor of the Church of England, I think based on everything that you've just described, certainly from a, a Catholic perspective, this, this is not the Anglican equivalent of, of the Pope. That that Indeed. that title or that role is that correct? N nothing like no no similarity whatsoever apart from the pointed hat. And and how would how would you say that the the British has the British monarchy's understanding or the British monarch's understanding of their role as supreme governor of the church? To what extent has that evolved since uh, King Henry VIII made himself uh, in charge of things, as it were? Fine. Well, so, so I mean, your, your invitation to do Anglican Church 101 is actually a very, very seriously difficult thing to do and, and can only be done if we restrict ourselves to a, a particular angle of approach. So let's use the angle of approach of power to begin with, because essentially power is what brought the Church of England into operation. So, um, uh, so the first power struggle took place about over dynastic problems. The, the Tudors, who were Welsh bandits, and whose grabbing of the throne uh, on the battlefield was more to do with power than in than 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 just uh, dynastic claim, were very very concerned that nobody asked any questions about their dynastic rights. So to do that, they had to have male heirs, and 
Henry had only, the, the Tudors had only been around for a hundred years, not long at all, and Henry doesn't have any male heirs, and there's been the most devastating civil war. You think the American Civil War's problems uh, was, was difficult and caused you problems. The War of the Roses um, was like that, plus a bit. And so Henry didn't want any more dynastic problems or civil wars, and the person who stood in the way of him and, and a successor was the Pope. Uh, and the problem was the, the the Pope was being, at the time, there were pragmatic solutions to, to divorces and to dynasty issues, and they were they're sold by annulments, and annulments were handed out pretty easily in the medieval world. But the real problem was, and, and Henry was very resentful about it, was that just at the time he was asking the Pope for an annulment, the wife he wanted to get rid of, her uncle was, was besieging the Pope. So the Pope was not about to really enrage the uncle with whom he was in problematic negotiations. So poor Henry had to take second place. Well, that didn't suit. So Henry said, OK, I will take your power and I will give it to my own archbishop. Now, you have to say, OK, where does the right to do that come from? Uh, and the answer was, well, force. <laughs> uh, so Henry's the king. He has force. And so he ruptures, he, he ruptures one and a half thousand years of, of history from the apostles. And he unilaterally makes his archbishop the equivalent of pope in the country. He says, you now issue the annulment. You're the pope. But they don't bother to kind of do any other catching up. It's just this transfer of power to uh, to legitimize the marriage. Well, as it happens, none of this works very well. And um, as you know, uh, Henry does get a young son who dies, and then Mary tries to bring, you know, the most one of the most interesting parts of the history of England is where Mary tries to undo all her dad did. And then Elizabeth comes along and re does it. <laughs> and, and, and during all this time, the Church of England goes, hey, I'm Catholic. Hey, I'm Protestant. Now I'm Catholic. Now I'm a bit of both. <laughs> and none of this is planned. It's all done by power. So, and, and, and in the middle, people get burnt for giving the wrong answer <laughs> and fined huge sums of money for not being in the right church at the right time. It's, 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 a, it's a horrible perversion of Christianity, this, this power struggle. So in the end, what you, you get is you get a church that has been tamed by the state, by the monarchy, and it does what it's told, because if it doesn't do what it's told, the monarchy has been cutting off their heads. So, you know, Henry, Henry killed his advisors. Woolsey died, Cromwell was beheaded, Moore, Moore was beheaded. It's a dangerous thing to, to, to defy the head of state. And so the state, the crown, tamed the church in England. Now, this didn't happen you know, although the Catholic Church has had a very exotic and complicated relationship with the crowned heads of states in Europe, um, you've had a much more nuanced history where, yes, the church went through some very bad periods, two popes, three popes, sold its soul to this king, defied another king. But in the end, it came out with some kind of continuous integrity. That's the kind of genius of the Catholic Church. And some people would say that's the fulfillment of Christ's promise at the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But it didn't happen in England. It, in England, it gave way. So then the next thing that happens is there's a civil war and the crown loses. So now parliament wins. So parliament has now subdued the church and the crown and it's in charge. So when you call, so you have two not pieces of nonsense. One, one the, uh, the, the renegade defender of the Catholic faith proclaiming himself unilaterally supreme governor as a, as a layman of a church which can only be run by bishops and, and archbishops when you know how does in in, in what theory of christendom <laughs> does a layman ever get to be in charge of a church uh, that's just crazy but nonetheless 
Henry got to impose his craziness. So then, then the, um, the the crown becomes supreme governor, but it loses the power battle to the state to the, to, to parliament. So now the supreme governor is not only a lay person, but he's an imp- impotent lay person. So he's doubly impotent. He has no power over the church and no power over the state. So this is this is truly Ruritanically Ruritania nonsense. And all that happens is that the the the, the monarchy gets reduced to um, filling in forms both for the church and for the state. So the Queen opens Parliament and she reads out the words that the that Parliament give her to read. And um, bishops have to go and put their hands between hers when they're made, but she doesn't choose them. And she has nothing more to do with them apart from inviting them to, to garden parties. Um, it's It's all utterly indefensible. And it's astonishing it's lasted so long, but there's a kind of magic to it nonetheless. And so long as it doesn't shoot itself in the foot completely, it could survive. But in my generation, it's chosen to shoot itself in the foot completely and it won't survive. It's, this is its last generation. It's kind of, in some ways, it's sad. That, that's the power narrative. There's one other narrative that I would like to say, because from a spiritual point of view, the Holy Spirit has tried to revive the church in England in, in, in three exotic and wonderful ways. And the first way was through through the Wesleys um, and the great evangelical revival in the 18th century. So you had all this turmoil in, in the 16th century. In, in the 17th century, it kind of settles down. In the 18th century, Wesley comes and, and sets the whole country afire with the gospel. And it's absolutely wonderful. And you would think then that the Church of England would say, gosh, this is fantastic. Hooray, real Christianity on our doorstep. Aren't we lucky? Someone has filled the tank of the car up. Um, but instead they detach the tank from the car and leave the car unused and and the fuel goes elsewhere. And it's a terrible tragedy. And then a hundred years later, there's a Catholic renewal because the Church of England is is has has a dual personality left over from Mary and Elizabeth. And 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 John Henry Newman and the Oxford movement come along and they they bring holiness and sacraments and and a and a desire to to, 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 to let, the, let the lost adopted child find its biological parents. And this could be a moment of enormous renewal, of rediscovery of personality, of re-legitimization. And what would any church give for an influx of holiness into its veins? A holiness that expresses itself in beauty and service to the poor uh, and people coming to Christ. This is great. So instead, the Church of England sends them to prison. <laughs> It says, we don't, we don't want this one either. Then in the 1960s, there's a Pentecostal movement hits the Church of England. And that was, I mean, that was where I came in. I saw this Pentecostal movement. I thought, whoa, okay, I could do this as a Christian. If, if you Pentecostalize the Church of England, uh, given that it's, it, it, it's, it's turned its face against evangelicals, turned its face against Catholics, maybe, maybe Pentecostal fuel could, could give some integrity and bring this slumbering giant to life. And it's one of the most interesting questions of our time is why it lasted only 30 years and then and then petered out well the answer is i think that the pentecostal movement was not the precursor to a revival of western society it was a freshening up of the holy spirit to prepare us for martyrdom which is what's coming down the road now so we are the i I am we are the generation that is that is preparing for a transition from being elegantly elegantly religiously not very potent to a rebirth of the church to a martyrdom which one can't look forward to, but, but, and it will be a very painful transition, but that's where we are. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Crown and Crozier. If you haven't already done so, please head over to your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to give us a rating. This helps us reach more listeners. If you enjoyed the episode, perhaps you consider supporting us with a donation. You can visit our website, crownandcrozier.com, and just click the little heart or the link in the show notes. Looking forward to having you with us again soon as we continue to explore all things church, state, and faithful citizenship.